John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory has of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. You may be seated. You ever had the experience of riding on an airplane and uh, there's a movie on or a TV show on, but you don't have any headphones? You ever had that? Um, you know, I don't know if they still sell them. I think they probably sell it. They, if they're charging you for bags, they're probably charging you for headphones now. But, but when, you, when you do that, or, or maybe if you've gone to the gym and you see there's a movie on, but you don't have a little radio to tune it into the station, and there's a movie, and, and maybe you recognize it, maybe you don't. But what you've, what you've experienced, if you've had that kind of moment where, where this thing is on the screen and you're watching it, but you can't hear the words, you can't hear the soundtrack, what you've experienced is that you get part of the story. Maybe you get the title. Maybe you can kind of get some general stuff, especially if it's like a physical comedy or something like that. But, but you miss the connections in the story. You can't really track the story as, as full as, as it is. And the other thing is you can't really feel the emotion of the story. A big part of a movie, right, is the soundtrack and the background music. And, and so you can't feel the delight or the, the whimsy or the fear or the suspense if you don't have the music and if you don't have the words. Well, most of us go through life seeing different things and, and sort of following a general story but not really having a way to connect it. Most of us are like people watching a movie without the words, and that's why it's important that we study doctrine. That's why it's important that we study God's word specifically, but, but even more this bigger idea of, of doctrine. So that's what we're doing this summer is we're looking at 13 different weeks, 13 different aspects of God's truth, trying to give us the words that make sense, that connect the dots in our lives, that help us to see what's really going on in the universe. What's the true story of the world? Otherwise, we sort of kind of try to piece it, but we just... Can't And so that's what we're doing. That's the value of this study is to try to give you the rest of the story as God tells it. Um, one of the things we get to today is we get to the person of Jesus. This is part seven. We're looking at the incarnation, this truth that God came to earth in the person 
of Jesus. Now, this is significant for a number of reasons. For one, uh, this begins almost a mini-series within this doctrine series where this week, and, uh, th- this week we look at Jesus coming, his life. Uh, next week, we look at Jesus' death on the cross. And the week after that, we look at Jesus' resurrection. These, this aspect of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that are so intertwined, and we begin to look at that today. That's a key part if you're going to connect and understand the story of the world and what God's doing in history, you've got to understand that stuff. The other reason that it's good to get to Jesus today is because everything that we've looked at so far is related to or points to or is fulfilled by Jesus. So we started the first week and we looked at Trinity, this idea that God exists, one God in three persons. And Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. And he comes into this earth as the second person of the Trinity. We studied Revelation, the idea that God has revealed himself through creation and through his word. Well, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of trying to understand who is God. He's the ultimate revelation of God. He's God in the flesh, as we'll see today. You want to know what God, what's God like? I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Who cares? Who's Jesus? He reveals it. We saw that God created. One of the things we'll see today is that uh, Jesus was definitely involved in the creation of all things. He was the word that created everything. We looked at that. We looked at that we're made in the image of God. Well, who is more in the image of God than Jesus Christ? So a perfect man made in God's image. Then we looked at the fall, the, the reality that Adam and Eve plunged humanity into sin. And even there... We saw in Genesis 3.15 that God made a promise that someday a descendant of Eve would come who would crush the head of that lying serpent. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. And then last week we looked at covenant, this reality that God pursues. He won't back down in his pursuit of us and his love for us. And we saw that Jesus is the fulfillment of his covenant promises. He is the true Passover lamb whose blood was shed so the angel of death would pass over us. And today we look specifically at his coming. Who is Jesus? Who is he really in his person? And then how should we respond to him? That's really what we're looking at today. Who is Jesus and how do we respond? If we're going to look at who Jesus is, one of the first places that we want to go is the gospel of John. Uh, Perhaps Uh, Like you, uh, you've had somebody, I've had people uh, say to me, hey, if you want to get to know God, you got to go to John. Actually, the way that I uh, became a Christian, the way I became a follower of Jesus was a neighbor of mine who said, hey, let's read through the Gospel of John together and talk about it. It's it's a place that you go. And and specifically, if you want to understand the person of Jesus, you go to John 1. John chapter one. So grab this. We're going to see a couple of different things um, today as we, as we look at who Jesus is and how we're to respond to that. But John 1 is really this key passage related to the identity and who Jesus Christ is. But one thing you should know about the, the Gospels is that the Gospel of John is unique. Uh, all the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similar in content. In fact, theologians would call those, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, together the synoptic Gospels. There's a lot of synergy between them. There's a lot of that's in common. You see a lot of the same stories, some uniquenesses. But for the most part, if you've read Matthew, Mark, uh, or Luke, you've gotten a lot of the same stories. Maybe a, a, an analogy would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke are like the network news. Right? So you watch NBC, you watch ABC, you watch CBS, you watch the evening news. 
you're kind of getting the same thing, right? You're going to get the same stories, a little bit different angle, a little bit different perspective, slightly different audience, but for the most part, it's going to be very similar. Well, John is unique. John would be more like CNN or Fox News or MSNBC, in that they're going to take a, John's going to take a particular issue and a particular angle, and he's going to really go in depth on that particular angle. Uh, so his specific angle is looking at the deity of Christ. Who is Jesus? Jesus as the Son of God. Now he's going to tailor that specifically to his audience, as we'll see. But, Jesus, but John here, John the writer, is, is going to go in depth onto who Jesus is. And like Fox News or MSNBC, he has an agenda. This is not... We acknowledge there's agendas here right, in these news channels. And I, whichever you like, it doesn't really matter to me. John's got an agenda. At the end of his book, he says, The reason I wrote this was so that you would believe in Jesus. That's his whole goal. That's his whole approach is to get you to see Jesus as God and to believe in his name. That's, that's all that he's after. So what do we see as we look at John chapter 1? Well, we see first about Jesus this. Jesus is fully and eternally God. Jesus is fully and eternally God. It says, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now there's a concept here that you've got to understand if you want to really get inside John's head as he's opening up his gospel. And this is the idea of the Word. You see it a number of times there, don't you? Cap, uh, the first letter capitalized, the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The word was with God. The word was God. And there's all this discussion about the word. Well, the Greek word for that is logos. And this concept of logos or word uh, is very important. I'm not throwing that out there just to impress you. Wow, that's a, there's a Greek word. He, I, I don't, I'm not very good with Greek, honestly. But, but it's a key idea to understanding this. And it's key both when you consider John's Jewish audience and his Greek audience. The Jewish audience... They understood that God created all things through his word. That when God, for instance, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be an expanse that separates the waters, and it was so. God's saying these things is his creative power, and so much so that the Jews, many of them, began to think of God and his word almost interchangeably. Now, that's not obviously exactly true. God isn't his word, and his word, uh, in terms of the written form, isn't, isn't God. But, but there was this sense in which God's, God's communicative power was so much of who he was that the Jews thought of it almost as being him. Now, the Greeks, they had a different approach. And John is writing, he's writing after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he's specifically uh, going at these, these Jews who are influenced by Greek philosophy. And Greek philosophy, essentially, many of you will understand this and be familiar with this, held a dualism. The idea that uh, physical things are bad. Your body, bad. Physical pleasure, bad. But spiritual things are good. And we live, don't we, in some of that same tension? 
Physical stuff's bad, spiritual stuff's good. All of it's intertwined. But what the, the Greeks believed was that there was this power, this force, that allowed there to be some sort of transcendent connection between the spiritual and the good and the physical and the bad. And that power or that force that allowed physical humans to have some connection with or understanding to God, in their mind, was this force known as the Logos. So John, as an expert missionary here, analyzing his culture, analyzing the people that he's trying to reach, says, you know what, they already have this category called the Logos. I want to help them see that the fulfillment of that idea is Jesus. Uh, One noted philosopher uh, related to this was And I don't know exactly how to say this. Heraclitus, that's what I'm going to say. And here's one quote uh, by him or about him uh, from from Driscoll and Brashear's doctrine book. I think this is helpful just to get that perspective that the Greeks had for some background. For Heraclitus, the creation of the world, the ordering of all life, and the immortality of the human soul were all made possible solely by the word or logos. That was the invisible and intelligent force Behind all that we see in this world. Also, it was the word through which all things were interrelated and brought into harmony, such as life and death, good and evil, darkness and light, and the gods and people. He went so far as to say that truth could be known, and wisdom, the great aim of Greek existence, found not by knowledge of many things, but instead by a deep and clear awareness of one thing, the word or logos. That's interesting, isn't it? Because what John's going to say here in writing his gospel is, Heraclitus, you're exactly right. It's not knowing a bunch of things. It's knowing deeply one thing, the Logos. And do you want to know who the Logos is? Jesus. As you read uh, John chapter 1, especially when we get down to verse 14, where it says that the word, the Logos, became flesh, and you read the rest of this book, it's clear that when John here is referring to the word, to the Logos, he's referring to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of both the Jewish and the Greek hopes, and he's trying to communicate that. And in the midst of all of that motive and all that he's trying to do there, his point, his clear point, is that Jesus, the word, was God. Look again at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, in the, in the beginning is, is sort of, it doesn't refer to a specific point in time, but sort of in eternity past. Once upon a time. I mean, this is a, like, this is a way of saying a long, long time ago was the Word. He's pre-existent, uncreated. And the Word was with God. So there's a distinction here of persons. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So he emphasizes it again. Then he says, all things were made through him. And in case you missed that, he goes on to say, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's like, hey, 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 God, Jesus made everything and nothing was made that he didn't make. And you're like, thanks, got it. Got it, John. He's repeating himself. There's emphasis here. That's important. Jesus created all things. The rest of scripture tells us the same thing. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, same idea. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible, everything was made by Jesus. Listen, only God is creator. So if John is saying Jesus created, what is he saying? Jesus is God. It goes on in verse 4 to say, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This idea of that essence of humanity is found in Jesus. Jesus uh, is the originator of of the life. Life itself is found in him, preexistent, always and forever. John, I think, in this passage here is very clear. He goes on through the rest of his book, though, to really emphasize the deity of Jesus. And we're not going to um, go into all of the different places that he, that he does it. But one of the clearest to me is found in John chapter 8. Jesus is interacting with some of the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And he makes a startling comment to them uh, that is essentially a claim to deity. Some people will tell you, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be divine. He was just a good moral teacher if someone says that they haven't read john 8 so here's john 8 jesus says to these leaders truly truly i say to you before abraham was i am now i am is the very phrase the very words that god used to reveal his name to moses when moses uh, in the wilderness said god tell me your name god replied i am And so when Jesus says that before Abraham was, thousands of years before him, before that, I am. He is claiming to be God. And in case you're skeptical about that, notice the response to what he claims. So they picked up stones to throw at him. The the claim to be God was a blasphemous claim, deserving to be stoned to death. He makes this claim, they get it. His, his, his audience here, there's no doubt in their mind what Jesus is claiming. He's claiming to be God. They pick up stones and he gets away. Jesus is fully and eternally God. Now, we're going to jump to the end of this passage here today. And then we'll go back up to the middle. Normally, we just kind of go through it. But we'll, uh, we'll actually go to the bookends and then go to the middle. Here's the second thing we see. Besides that Jesus was fully and eternally God, we see that Jesus took on full humanity. Jesus took on full humanity. And the Word became flesh, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, these Greek philosophers would have really tracked with John well through this. As soon as they said the word, the logos, became flesh, became physical, there's some disconnect there. And so John uses the rest of his gospel to flesh that out. But what he's saying here is Jesus took on full humanity. Now, you may have noticed that I said that Jesus was eternally and fully God, and he took on full humanity. So this wasn't 50-50, part God, part man, right? Like in some sort of superhero thing. This is full God, full man. I don't know how that works. 
Let's be honest. I, I don't understand it. It is one of the most marvelous and astounding miracles of history. Yet the Bible claims that it's so. And this is something that makes Jesus unique. There's no other religious leader, there's no other founder of any major religion that is claimed to be God. Many that have claimed to hear from God, to have visions from God, to be visited by an angel of God, none that claim to be God and yet are human. That's an amazing thing. No one else claimed that. You know what this is? Jesus becoming flesh. This is the ultimate episode of Undercover Boss. <laughs> have you seen this show? How many of you have seen Undercover Boss? That is a fascinating show. If you haven't seen it, what happens is generally the CEO or president of some big company, uh, who it's a big enough company that he's not particularly known by people or whatever, he disguises himself. If he has a beard, he'll shave it, sometimes change his hair color, whatever it is. And he will go and he'll do a series of jobs within his organization, usually a bunch of the low ones and a bunch of the other things. And it's kind of a way for him to understand how... how What's the troops' morale and how are things really going? And to appreciate how difficult some of these people have it in their company. And then at the end, what always happens is they have this reveal where they bring in all these people that he's interacted with along the way. Now, inevitably, there's always somebody who has been doing like an incredible job in a thankless role. And they're just faithful and they're joyful and they're doing a great job. And they get brought in and they go, you're the CEO? And they get some big promotion and a big raise and they get rewarded for that. And then there's also always somebody who's kind of a scuffler. They're working with the boss and they're like, leadership in this company is stupid. Why do they make us do this? That CEO, he's so full of himself. And, right, I mean, like, and they come in and they're like, right? And there's usually some consequences to that. This is the ultimate episode of Undercover Boss. God, the boss of everything, is coming in human flesh in Jesus to live and to experience everything that we would experience. That's what's happening here. This is mind-blowing. Why would he do that? What would motivate something like that? I mean, why, why couldn't God just say, I'm going to just tell you about myself through the, the Bible, or I'm going to write some things in the clouds in the sky, or I'm going to, you're going to hear my voice. I mean, why have to take on a physical body and become fully human? Why, why go to that length? Well, to the answer of that question, I think we have to turn to one of our day's great theologians and philosophers, Bono. Uh, Bono's the lead singer of U2, and whether you like him or hate him, he is a very thoughtful man. Um, has analyzed a lot of different things. And he has a very interesting and I think thoughtful quote about an experience he had on Christmas Eve. And it's worth sharing here. He says this, I remember coming back from a very long tour. On Christmas Eve, I went to St. Patrick's Cathedral. Here in the Christmas story. It says, it had dawned on me before, but it really sank in the Christmas story. The idea that God... If there is a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough. That it would seek to explain itself and describe itself by becoming a child born in straw poverty. A child. I just thought, wow. Just the poetry. There it was. 
I was sitting there and tears came down my face. And I saw the genius of this, utter genius of picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this. Because love needs to find form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. To me, it makes sense. It's actually logical. It's pure logic. Essence has to maintain it, has to manifest itself. It's inevitable. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. Why would God do this in the person of Jesus? Because love has to be flesh. It has to be concrete. It has to be whispered. It has to be observed. Right? Anyone can say they love you, but it's not until you see how they treat you and you interact with them on a personal level and you sense who they are that you know that they love you. Love must be made flesh. This is love in the flesh, Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. What is this love like? What is this person like? Who is this Jesus? Right today, in the incarnation, we look at it to a degree. We've got to summarize the whole life of Jesus. What is that summary? John gives it for us right there in verse 14. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Jesus' ministry demonstrates full grace and full truth. Now, that's a difficult concept as well for many of us to understand because many of us, if we have either, we're prone to one at the expense of the other. So some of you are here today, you're like total grace people. Man, we just need to love everybody more. And I know they did that, but they probably didn't mean to. And just forgive them. And it's okay. And don't worry. And I mean, kind of this hyper grace sort of very, very sort of ah, everything's okay, just love everyone kind of mentality. That's sort of the, the extreme of that kind of grace. The other response would be truth. Do what's right. It's written there. Just, just do what it says. How can these people be so stupid? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Let's go, right? Grace or truth. And what uh, Randy Alcorn in his book, Grace and Truth Paradox, he compares us to a golden retriever who has one tennis ball in its mouth and tries to pick up another one and drops the first one. That's how we are. We, we just pendulum swing. We go, grace, grace, grace. No, you've got to get revenge, truth. And then we, we, just, we just go back and forth. What the scripture says is that Jesus demonstrates both. What is his life? What does his life of love look like? It looks like a life full of grace and truth. And, and John gives us a wonderful example. If you've got your Bible there in John 1, just go to the next chapter, to John chapter 2. And, and it's as if John says, listen, I just told you uh, that Jesus' life is about grace and truth. Let me give you an example of this. And so John chapter 2 introduces us to Jesus' first miracle. You know what it was? Jesus' first miracle was not raising someone from the dead. Jesus' first miracle was not restoring sight to a blind person. Jesus' first miracle was not feeding 5,000 hungry people or allowing a, a lame person to walk. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding so the party could be better. That's it. That's what it is. That they're at this wedding and there's this huge thing. They've run out of wine. And Jesus goes, well, fill up those buckets with water. And they're like, 
good idea. And they go do it. And then they're like, whoa. And the master of ceremony says, this is the best wine. Most people you know, use all the best wine at the beginning and then give all the drunk people bad wine. You've done the opposite. And this is incredible. Why, why did he do that? Just to make the party better. Well, that's not very spiritual. No, but it's very human. And Jesus is human. And he's full of grace. That's startling. You're like, well, he wasted a miracle on that. No. He's communicating through that very first miracle. Here's who I am. I love to bless. And we, as people who should try to imitate Jesus, should be those kinds of people who metaphorically bring, and literally, bring the best wine to the party. Do we look for opportunities to go, we we can make this thing better. Christians don't have that reputation, by the way. I don't know if you know that. You know, if you're like a a server at a restaurant, you don't want to work Sunday afternoon because all the church people come and they stiff you on tips. They leave you a gospel track. That's nice. But they don't tip you anything. They're cheap. That's That's not gospel people. Full of grace and truth. But that's who Jesus is. So we see this just incredible picture of grace. And then it's immediately followed by a great picture of truth. Jesus goes in the next scene uh, to Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple, and he finds people there. And it says in verse uh, 14, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, what's going on here? You've got to understand a little bit of the background on this so you understand this, this idea. Jesus is going here, and all these people are coming, and they're making their sacrifices. And depending on their income level, they would sacrifice various animals of various expense. Uh, but what all of them had in common was that what they had to sacrifice had to be unblemished, had to be costly to them. For many people, they would spend a lot of time preparing this unblemished, cost, uh, costly sacrifice, bring it to the temple... And then what would happen, because it had to be just so, is these corrupt people who were leading this whole process at the temple would often see your perfectly fine lamb and go, no, there's a little, there's a, there's a dent on the hood. I know you can't see it, but there it is. But hey, come back to this lot. We've got some pre-approved lambs. And uh, today's your lucky day. We've got a deal for you. And so they, they, were, they were exploiting these people, many times poor people. And the very animal that they would bring would often end up in the lot sold to somebody else. And it was this whole system of injustice. And Jesus sees this. His issue isn't that they're trading money in the thing. It's that they're exploiting people. It's like a, it's like a payday loan thing, just sharking people like crazy. This total injustice that's happening. Jesus sees it, and he responds with truth. He responds furiously. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. It says, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. Now listen. A whip of cords. It says he made a whip of cords. Can you do that? You sit down. You get cords. You tie them. You tie them. I mean, this isn't something you just... It wasn't like he made it. Let there be a whip of cord. Right? I mean, he had to sit there and make this. This took time. This wasn't flying off the handle, Jesus. Man, get a control of your temper, Jesus. This is Jesus seeing injustice. 
saying, I, I can't stand that. I've got to do something about this. Not sort of sin-sniffing and, hey, why don't you just clean up your act and correcting everyone he can, seeing a, a real issue and going, I'm going to do something. And so he sits there, and I don't know how long it took him, 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes, and he, he's thinking about what he's going to do, and he's got this righteous anger the injustice that's happening and the way God's name is being defamed and he goes and he turns over all these tables. Jesus, full of grace and truth. That's who he is. That's what we're called to be. That's why um, you'll hear occasionally around here someone talk about the idea of incarnational ministry. It's just simply talking about the idea of serving like Jesus, full of grace and truth doing all the ordinary things you do and yet thinking, how can I bring grace to this? How can I bring truth to this? How can I embody Jesus here? That's what this is. But the staggering reality about who Jesus is, at least one of the things that just shocks me over and over, is to consider Jesus was fully human. Wayne Grunham has a really thought-provoking quote on this. We'll share this here. He says, was Jesus fully human? He was so fully human that even those who lived and worked with him for 30 years, even those whose brothers grew up in his own household, did not realize he was anything more than another good human being. They apparently had no idea he was God come in the flesh. Can you believe that? That's crazy. Like to me, I'm thinking Jesus starts doing all these miracles and all these people who went to elementary school with him are like, You know, I always thought he'd end up doing a Messiah thing. He was kind of weird, and he never picked on anybody. And I, I like, totally, I saw that coming. You know, most likely to become the Messiah in his yearbook. No. In fact, when his brothers and those in his hometown saw him doing all that he did, said, Isn't this Joe's kid? Where do you get this power? I don't even have a slot for that. We just imagine Jesus to be sort of superhuman and, yeah, he's God and man, but he was mostly wearing his God t shirt most of the time. And he was fully human, depending on the Spirit, moment by moment, just like we are too. That's why we have such a comfort in him. It's because he knows and has experienced all that we have and yet without sin. That's a great truth. That's who Jesus is. He's fully God and he's fully human. So how do we respond to that? How have people respond to that? Well, John describes this in chapter one and the way John describes it is exactly true of how we uh, respond even today, how people have responded ever since. Look at verse nine. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That word know means to recognize. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So how do some respond to this truth of who Jesus is? Many miss who Jesus really is. They missed who he truly was. He came To the world, the world didn't know him. Came to his own, people didn't receive him. 
When it says his own, he's saying specifically he came to his own people. He came to the Jews, the people who had the scripture, the people who had the revelation, the people who had the promise of Genesis 3.15, the people who had Isaiah 53 and all these other passages and had Micah 5 predicting the virgin birth and coming from Bethlehem. They had all this. They didn't see him. That's how many respond today. They see these truths about who he is, and they don't receive him. It reminds me of a story that we've been singing around our home lately. A story by Alan Levi. is a songwriter, kind of a folksy guy. And he wrote this song called The Land Where the People Walk Backwards. I'm going to sing it for you. All right, now I'm just going to acknowledge up front, this is going to be a little pitchy, dog. All right, so we're not doing a whole, like, I'd give it a B plus on the vocals. Um, but listen to this story. It's, just, it's, better, it's a better story sung than just read. And here's the story. There's a land where the people all walk around backwards. They walk around backwards everywhere they go. They are bumped, they are bruised, they are scarred and broken. And why they walk around backwards... They don't know. They stumble and they stagger into one another. They trip and they tumble and they all fall down. There's a dangerous cliff that they cannot see and a lake at the bottom where the people drown. It seems that they've always walked around backwards. They were backwards born. They were backwards grown. The little children learned it from their mamas and papas. And they're reluctant to leave what they've always known. Well, some do worse and some do better. They all get by in the backwards town. They all fear the cliff and the lake below. And the people do fall and the children do drown. Then a stranger came to town and to them he walked backwards was the strangest sight they ever did see. But he had no bumps, no scars, no bruises. And he said, this is how you were meant to be. If you'll just follow me, if you'll just turn around, you can see where you're going and you'll not fall down. You'll have no fear of the cliff and the lake. And you'll not tumble in and you'll never drown. But the people got afraid and the people got angry. When he said, come and follow, everyone refused. They all got together and they did away the stranger. And they still get broken and scarred and bruised. But some, I've been told, heard the things he said. You can see their footprints around the town. They stand at the cliff with the words of the stranger. You'll do fine if you just turn around. There still is a land where the people walk backwards. They walk around backwards everywhere they go. That's the story. That's the story. Jesus came to his own. said, follow me. Turn around. You're walking backwards. And they were so used to walking backwards, they didn't even see it that way. You know, that's exactly how we are. The fall of of pride, the fall of the sin that all initiated at the fall, that is in us still. We are so full of ourselves. We are so self-absorbed. We are so focused on us 
We don't even see it. And Jesus says, come follow me. And many say, it's more comfortable to walk backwards. It's all I've ever known. Why didn't they receive him? Why keep walking backwards? John goes on to explain it in John chapter 3. He says this. This is Jesus talking. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. I don't know about you. I don't like to be exposed. I don't like to have sinful, yucky, ugly stuff in my life get exposed. Do you like that? And so many will hear who Jesus is. But the light of that is so frightening. I don't want to experience that. I don't want to let go of this. I'm comfortable here. It's all I've ever known. My, my mom and my dad were like it. They didn't turn out so bad, right? I mean, all, all, all of those lies that we believe. And we all believe them. But some hear the things he say. He said, and some, this text says, believed. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Some received him. Some received Jesus. They saw him for who he was. And how do we know that? What does receiving Jesus look like or mean? It says to believe in his name. His name is is who he is. It's not like like believing in the name. Like if you just say Jesus real fast a bunch of times. Like that's belief. It's not like a superstitious thing. It's, It's who he is believing in him. They believed in his name. And as a result, he gave them the right to become children of God. There's a, there's a very common uh, error that's out in our culture, and I don't blame anybody for having this, uh, this error out there. It's just, it's just the way it is, that you'll often hear people say, well, we're all children of God. Um, I get what people are trying to say. I think what they're trying to say is something that we would agree with in, in biblical Christianity, which is that we're all made in the image of God. There's, there's human dignity, there's, there's value in every person because we're all made in his image. But the scripture says, not everyone is a child of God. Child of God is a, is a special relationship. That's a special status reserved for those who trust Jesus. Those are the ones adopted into his family. What a special relationship that is, isn't it? It's, it's amazing to be thought, I'm in the image of God, but to be a child of God, to have the hostility removed and a relationship initiated, that's mind-blowing. And that's what Jesus offers to those who will believe in his name. Unless we think that, you know, the people who reject are just a bunch of immoral idiots and the people who receive are just, they're, man, they're so smart or they're so wise or, gosh, it was because they were so moral. Listen, before, as soon as you start to think that, John comes with verse 13. Who were born not of blood, so, so not your pedigree, not your ethnicity, not being Jewish, doesn't, doesn't matter, nor of the will of fat flesh, nor of the will of man. So this isn't like, 
man, you were so smart, you were so great, this was just, you saw it, and, and all these other idiots didn't. No, this is, they were born of God. God in his grace allows some to see Jesus for who he is and to treasure him, to believe in his name. And I pray that that's happening for some of you right now. That even now you would sense that God is drawing you, is birthing in you a new desire and passion and love for this stranger who is full of grace and truth. Many missed who Jesus truly was. Some believed. What about you? You believe. You trust. You treasure Christ. And, and listen, whether, whether you're here and you, you came in and going, no, I don't, and, and now you're beginning to wrestle with that, or you came in going, yeah, I believe in Jesus, like that's why I'm here. Listen, the book of Colossians says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. How do you receive him? By believing in his name. So what's going to strengthen you and give you power and courage to keep going hard after him? To believe afresh in his name. And then to imitate and to follow his life of grace and truth. That's what he invites us to today. On the back of your connection card, uh, I want to just draw your attention to one thing. Or actually, it's not on the back. It's actually on the front. Uh, normally, it would be on the back. Today, it's on the front. There's a, a couple boxes there. One is um, if, if you're interested in becoming a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here today and this has just piqued some questions in your heart. And you're going... I, I'd like more information about that. I'd like to talk to someone. Another one there would be to say, I want to talk with a pastor. We'd love to um, engage you in conversation and to help if you feel like God might be birthing this new thing in your life. We want to, we want to help in any way we can. So please uh, mark that, and you can put it in the boxes um, sometime during the rest of our service. So for now, let's pray. Um, God, what an amazing gift you've given us in your son, Jesus. I pray that you would grant us, uh, by your spirit, faith to believe and to trust and to know that Jesus is who he said he was. Fill our hearts with delight in that truth and allow us to go into the world embodying him, full of grace and truth. We pray that in Jesus' name. Well, we're going to invite you to respond uh, to that great truth. We're going to respond in a number of ways today. Uh, the first one is we're going to respond through singing. And a lot of the songs that we're going to sing today, they're just, they're just perfectly intertwined with this idea of seeing Jesus in his glory. John 1.14 said, the word became flesh and we have seen his glory. So we're going to sing and celebrate about that glory now. We'll invite you to do that and, and to take Matthew's exhortation from earlier and uh, enjoy this. Get into it. Sing loud. Express yourself physically however you feel comfortable. But let's make a loud noise and celebrate the glory of God. That's one way to respond. We also have some men and women uh, who are going to be over your right shoulder in the back corner. Um, They're going to be there for the rest of the service to pray with you. If you want to pray about anything, you can just sneak back there at any point. And they'd love to talk with you. If you have questions, you can go back there as well. There's giving boxes in the back, those mailboxes. Uh, if you want to support the mission and the ministry that God is doing here, we invite you to do so.
And then there's also a communion element here. The bread and the cup. Which represents Jesus' body and his blood. The two things that he gave on the cross, which we'll talk about next week, which gives us access to him. Jesus was treated like an orphan so that we could be brought in as children. So we celebrate that. And so if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, uh, we invite you to celebrate communion. And the way we just would invite you to do it is to um, take some moments and reflect and pray and rejoice just privately. And whenever you feel led, at any point from now through the rest of our gathering, uh, you can get up and come to these uh, tables. Uh, there's two up here in the corners and there's one back there in the middle. And just to come to those tables um, and to get the elements and then to take them back to your seat or find some place, just a nook and cranny where you want to celebrate that together, um, feel free to do that. We invite you at any point you feel ready. If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Christ, uh, we don't want to pressure you into communion. Communion is something. This, this celebration is something for those who already would say they believe in Jesus. So instead, reflect, pray, join us in singing, um, and make sure you come back next week as we continue to look at who Jesus was and what he's done. I'm going to ask the band, they're going to come up, and uh, when your heart's prepared, you're free to respond.